Welcome to the Coventry Vineyard Podcast. Wherever and whenever you're listening, we hope you're blessed by this message. If you want to find out more about our church or speak with someone about Jesus, head to coventryvineyard.org. If you could open your Bible up to Matthew 27, uh, we're going to be in verse 11. And what we've been doing, as we've sort of started to finish uh, the book of Matthew, we've just been pausing uh, during this time of Lent um, and looking in particular at three relationships. Uh, The other week we looked at the relationship between Jesus and Judas. Then last week we looked at Jesus and Peter. And today we're going to look at Jesus and Barabbas. Now, Barabbas isn't really one of those words that we, or names that we tend to call kids anymore. Um, (laughs) But maybe it's a good name for a dog or a cat or something. And what I'm going to look at is Jesus and Barabbas and that whole thing between revolution or kingdom. And I'm just going to go straight into the text today. And it says at the beginning, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. Now, the meanwhile is that what's been happening is Peter's left outside the courts in a flood of tears because he's uh, realized he's betrayed uh, Jesus. And then he's beginning that, that process of repentance. And then Judas has gone back to the religious leaders and saying, I've betrayed a, an innocent man. And they're like, well, what does it do? What's it got anything to do with us? So he's gone off. And it says, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. It was a little bit cryptic. He could have just said yes, but Jesus says, you have said so. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival, this is the festival of the Passover, uh, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was... Jesus Barabbas. Now, Matthew is the only person that has in his gospel the name Jesus Barabbas. And some manuscripts have this as Jesus Barabbas and some don't. I think that's fascinating, isn't it? You've got two Jesuses there. You've got Jesus Barabbas, which would mean Jesus Barabbas, son of the father, which is incredible, Abba, father. And then you've got Jesus, and they would have known him as Jesus Bar Joseph. Jesus, son of Joseph. So you've got these two Jesuses there. And so when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who was called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. I think that's the question for today. Which Jesus? Which Jesus do you want? Which Jesus do you want in your everyday life? Which Jesus do you want? But also, which Jesus do you need? And we were saying, I was talking with Nadine this week about what I was going to be speaking on, things like power and humility. And we sang about it in the, the, the song about the lion and the lamb. We want Jesus the powerful, but we also recognize that Jesus comes humble like a slain lamb. And on that day in Jerusalem with those two men 
standing before the crowd, the people were celebrating the festival of Passover. It was a time when they remembered that they'd been set free from a life of slavery, liberated from oppression, and they were celebrating this holy day now under the oppression of another occupying force and a system of injustice. The people were waiting for the one who had been promised to them to once and for all establish God's plan and rescue their nation. They were living in expectation. They were waiting for a man to rise from amongst them, a savior, the Messiah. And they wanted revolution. So revolution is the overthrow of a ruler or system which has borne out this desperation to be rid of an old system and to bring in something new. And for the crowd that were there, hope lay really in the past more than the future. They were kind of like reformers. They, the, the revolutionaries of Jesus' day hoped to restore the golden age of King David. The Messiah they longed for was to be the, the new King David. And one group in particular had taken matters into their own hands, and it was the zealots of Jesus' time, who were mostly peasants from the, the northern hill country of Judea, they were the, which was David's country, and they were the Davids to Rome's Goliath. Their thinking was that if we could just rise like David to face the Goliath of Rome, if we could just take that first step by slitting some Roman throats and burning some Roman buildings and punishing those who had collaborated with Rome, then God would raise up a heroic liberator among us to lead us to victory. And the Messiah they hoped for would liberate them and establish a revolutionary kingdom of God once and for all, a kingdom like King David's, and Barabbas was one of them. Now, Barabbas's method of revolution was to assassinate key political figures, and this is what had led him to stand before Pilate and the crowd. Matthew says that he was a revolutionary, he was a murderer, and those who collaborated with Rome were enemies of the state to the zealots. So these people, in the zealots' mind, they had to die for the freedom of the masses, but the thing is, could Barabbas and his revolutionaries really bring the freedom that people wanted? Can there ever really be peace through violence? Can hatred for your enemy ever really bring revolution? Now, perhaps the most iconic image of revolution uh, in our day is this picture of Che Guevara. You don't see Che Guevara often in churches, as I was talking with Rich this morning. And um, he's got a whole load of quotes. He, he said a lot of things. He said things like, we cannot be sure of having something to live for unless we are willing to die for it. I think that's something that Barabbas would have agreed with. See, Che Guevara's declaration was homeland or death. Again, something Barabbas would have understood. When he appeared in a TV interview in 1967, which was, seems a long time ago, he was asked what the most important quality a revolutionary must have. And in that moment, he answered really gently. He said the most important quality was one thing, love. Love of humanity, justice, and truth. And we might think, oh, what a lovely guy. What a lovely person. Elsewhere, he declared that the true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. And you think... Okay, he's a little bit like Jesus. Yet any thought of love and compassion was twisted into ruthless violence. He's thought to have executed hundreds of people. In a letter to his mother, and this seems appropriate on Mother's Day, 
he wrote this. He says, I'm not Christ or a philanthropist, old lady, which isn't a great way to talk to your mum. He said, I am all the contrary of a Christ. Just think that, all the contrary of a Christ. He says, I fight for the things I believe in with all the weapons at my disposal and try to leave the other man dead so that I don't get nailed to a cross or any other place. So he's a bit of a conflicted sort of person. In one message, he spoke of the need to embrace hatred in order to bring about a revolution. He said this, hatred as an element of the struggle, a relentless hatred of the enemy, impelling us over and beyond the natural limitations that man is heir to and transforming him into an effective, violent, selective, and cold-killing machine. Our soldiers must be thus. A people without hatred cannot vanquish a brutal enemy. And it seems like Guevara wrestled with the choice of violence or love and hatred or humility. And he landed on this kind of violent hatred side of things. Like I kind of think there's similarities between Che Guevara and this Jesus Barabbas. Now, commenting on violence and hatred, on the other scale, you have the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. He said this, he said, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. He had a beautiful way of speaking, didn't he? Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so here before this crowd stood two men, both accused of leading a rebellion against the authority of Rome. Two men, a crowd, and a choice. Which one to set free and which one to kill? Jesus Barabbas was a bandit, a violent murderer, a terrorist, and a hero. <laughs> Jesus by Joseph was a builder, a loving healer, a peacemaker, and now a villain. See, Jesus was seen as a revolutionary. It was his actions and words that had led him to this point. The problem was the people were blind to how far the revolution was to extend. The people thought that he was going to kick some Roman butt and just bring about the new era of the reign of King David that they all knew and longed to see happen again. And Jesus didn't fit the picture that people had of the Messiah. And he still doesn't fit the picture that people often think that they want in a saviour. However, his revolution would not stop at the borders of Palestine, but would extend to encompass the entire world. Their understanding of revolution was too small. And instead of a revolution built on hatred, Jesus brings a revolution built entirely on love, even love of one's enemy. And instead of the way of power, Jesus sets out the way of humility, I just want to pause here and just have a word on humility. I think it ties in with the story that, that um, we had from Joy earlier. Now, humility is 
not thinking less of yourself. As C.S. Lewis says, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. There's a great little book by um, kind of the, what was he, entrepreneur, philanthropist, business guru kind of guy, um, guy called Patrick Lencioni. So if you're in business, his books, he always has a bit of a fable and then picks out some really key things. And there's a book called The Ideal Team Player that somebody bought me for Christmas. It wasn't anybody in my family, but it felt like a little bit of a dig. The Ideal Team Player. And in the book, he comes up with these three things. So three, think of three circles, and they all kind of overlap. And in the middle is the ideal team player. And so one side, you have hunger, where you have that eagerness to do more that you're self-motivated, you're diligent. And if you're looking for people in business, if you're looking for people uh, to invite into your team, you want someone that's going to be self-motivated, not someone that you're going to have to keep on kind of trying to encourage to do something. You want someone that's diligent, someone that's going to say, okay, what can I do next? So that's the hunger part. And then you have somebody who's smart. And it's not intellectually smart, but it's more about common sense and self-awareness and good judgment. They kind of see that there's something to be done. So you want, you want to pick out someone's hunger and smart. But the one thing that really encapsulates all of this is humility. And I think workplaces are moving more and more towards that. That workplaces don't want bullies and people that are just going to put around their authority and their arrogance. They want somebody with humility. Now, humble people are quick to point out the contributions of others rather than themselves. They don't just talk about all their own amazing accomplishments. It's not I in a humble person. It's about we. This is what we are doing. The other thing about humble people is they're secure in who they are and what they bring. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And so Jesus did not believe that others must die so that he can be free. His belief was that he must die so that others may be free, including Barabbas. So in this, it's almost like we are Barabbas. Jesus is giving his life so that Barabbas would go free. Jesus gave his life so that we could go free. And for Jesus, freedom is not worth killing for, but it is worth dying for that real violence could not come, sorry, that real revolution could not come through violence. So when Jesus, towards the end of Matthew's gospel, says, go and make disciples, teaching the new disciples to do everything that he had taught, it's clear that he's sending revolutionary agents into the world. But he's launching a very different kind of revolution, a revolution that he called the kingdom of God where hatred and revenge is replaced by love and forgiveness, where lust and greed will be replaced by respect and generosity, where anger and arrogance is replaced with mercy and humility, where hurry and stress will be replaced by joy and rest. See, Jesus does not just promise a revolution he promises a kingdom. It's not just a revolution, but it's resurrection. It's not just revolution, but it's reconciliation. It's not just revolution, but it's transformation. That It's transforming each and every one of us, and it's transforming 
the world. See, Jesus was more than a revolutionary. Jesus' revolution was about freeing those who were in slavery to the oppression of sin and shame and guilt and death. But his mission didn't stop with a revolution. He established a kingdom which we still which we get to still be a part of and still join him in building for his, his kingdom, which is why we call this whole series The King and His Kingdom. His kingdom being a future reality, not just looking back to the past, this future reality which is breaking into the world that would bring new life, liberation, and freedom from the oppression of sin. But the people wanted Barabbas. It says this, says, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor, Pilate. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And so this begins the final hours of Jesus. And Pilate washes his hands in front of the crowd, says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He said, it's your responsibility. And he releases Barabbas, but has Jesus flogged and then handed over to be crucified. And so in the cross, we find the essence of this new kingdom. In the cross, we find transformation, a complete change. And that first Easter, the, the icon of Roman oppression, the cross, becomes the icon of Jesus' liberation, of our rescue, of our reconciliation. And Jesus would say uh, to his disciples in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The old has gone, the new has come. This new system, this new way of life has come. See, Christ reveals the, the glory of God in a revolutionary way by overthrowing the old order and replacing it with something entirely new. And there's something utterly revolutionary about Christ coming into the world. The old has gone, the new has come. It's a new system, but it's one that doesn't look like what we might expect. And when we struggle and we want God to intervene, we tend to rage against him when he appears silent. We want God to come in and fighting our, we sang about that as well, fighting our battles. So God, we want you to come in and fight our battles. We want you to, to show us how powerful you are. And it, sometimes it appears that he's silent. We want power when what we really need is love. We want that power, but what we really need is love. Because love always wins. Love is always more powerful. Now, I've got some of the stuff from today's talk from this tiny little book, and it's not very long. Um, and it's by Tony Campolo called Witch Jesus. Um, and there's a little, bit, little story here that I want to just share. And it's a story for Mother's Day. And he tells the story of a boy that's been born with, um, 
with the effects of thalidomide. So he's born, he's got uh, legs, but no arms. And he says, as the boy grew, his mother taught him to do a variety of rather complex things with his feet, including writing, eating, and even playing the guitar. You just imagine this little boy growing up and his mum teaching him all these things. And it says this, the most difficult everyday task for him was learning how to dress himself. Trying as hard as, as she could, his mother just was not able to get him to do this. Every morning he begged for her help, and every morning she came to the rescue. Then one day she made an extremely difficult decision. She put his clothes on his bed and told him that she would not let him out of his room until he dressed himself. He begged for help as he struggled with his clothes. He screamed at her and accused her of not really loving him. He stomped about the room, kicking whatever he could and shouting obscenities. And all day long, his mother sat outside the door, crying. It says this, less love would have had her intervene, but great love left her with no alternative but to force her son into the struggle that goes with independence. In telling this story, he now says that only in retrospect did he realize how much love it took for his mother to make him into a free man. He says, God's, uh, God, because of love, often refuses to step in and use power to deal with the agonies of our existence. During most times of suffering, all that we get from God are empathetic tears, and they are tears that cannot be heard. That silence can seem unbearable, but the tears of God are real. The last little bit says this. The shortest verse in the Bible tells us that Jesus, by Joseph, wept. And Tony Campolo says this. Says, I believe that he continues to weep as he empathizes with all those who suffer. Understanding that Jesus sheds tears for us is a source of comfort and strength. And it may be all we have to carry us through our darkest days. Get this. When the storms of life beat upon us, as the scriptures say they will, Jesus does not appear at our bidding to drive our troubles away. But if we are grounded in his promises, we will have a solid spiritual foundation undergirding us that will enable us to endure those storms. During those times when Jesus is all we have, we will know that he is all that we need. So my questions for you as we finish is, have you said yes to follow the king and his kingdom? Have you said yes to follow the king and his kingdom? Are you in that place, like that little boy, where you're raging against God, saying, God, I need you to fix this. I need you to step in. And God is saying, I'm showing you love. There is a way out of this. And for, for us, say, God, what are you teaching us in this? And it may be that you're in a, a place of, of work or a situation in family or in life in general. And again and again, we're crying out, God, would you rescue us? Would you come in? Would you intervene? It's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, we're saying, Jesus, what are you teaching me in this? What am I learning in this? What is this way of love? What is this way of humility? See, which system are you and I living in? Do we re reject the system of the world that demands our kind of subservience and domesticates our values and, and dominates our thinking? Or 
do we defect to a different belief system, the belief system of the kingdom? Are our lives defined by God's kingdom? Do we reject a way of life that keeps us captive and enter into that revolutionary transformation of our lives? And not just of our own lives, but also our communities. That as we are changed, we change our workplaces, we change our families, our neighborhoods, all those that we engage with. So, will you become an agent of healing, uh, an ambassador of grace, uh, an emissary of the king? Will you join the mission of Jesus to bring transformation, to proclaim good news to the poor, to liberate the oppressed, to bring sight to the blind and declare the year of the Lord's favor? And will you join Jesus in building for his kingdom in which the least will be the greatest and the first a last? Thanks for tuning in today. We would love to connect with you on a Sunday morning soon. Bless you and have a great week.